Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, October 6th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host. If you're not familiar with me, maybe new to the program, welcome in a big special welcome to you if you're new. As this radio family continues to grow, I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Plus, we host this national radio program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't catch all three hours live, that's okay. We have a podcast as well. It's always free, always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, both Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. We are coming to you live this entire week from the Hoover Institution out in Palo Alto, California, Northern California, on the campus of Stanford University. We are very grateful for their hospitality and their great lineup of experts here. And we have had several of them already on this week, a few more to come today and tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Here is the lineup on this Thursday edition of the program. One of those aforementioned experts, Dr. Scott Atlas, medical doctor, healthcare expert. He's got a lot to say. Looking forward to chatting with him again. That's coming up later this hour. Tyler Goodspeed, a top economic advisor under President Trump. He'll be here on The Economy coming up in the next hour, as will Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics. On the polling, where do things stand today? Looking ahead to November 8th, we're awfully close to a month out. I want to ask Tom about polling in particular, not what the polls are showing, but whether or not we should be believing the polls, even as they seem to get better and better for Republicans in a lot of places. I saw a new poll just out moments ago from CNN that shows Adam Laxalt ahead in that Nevada Senate race. I think that's the fourth or fifth consecutive poll that has him ahead. That would be a pickup for the Republicans in the Senate. Tom Bevan, polling guru, up in our next hour. And in our final hour today, Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News. I'll be a guest on that show this weekend on Fox News Channel. Howie will be here to talk about all things media. That's in our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, as we begin the program today, I want to talk about a development that broke in the Wall Street Journal shortly after we went off the air yesterday. We had Condoleezza Rice here, the former Secretary of State. One of the questions that I asked her, one of the topics that we covered together was energy, energy production here at home, the geopolitics of oil, gas and energy. And the decision, the announcement from OPEC that they were going to scale back production of oil and how that is not great news for American consumers who have already been dealing with highly elevated gas prices for a while. It went way up in the summer, came down a little bit, still 
high, and now it's creeping upward again. And we're seeing all these maneuvers and stunts by the Biden administration trying to sort of get around that problem that they have caused for themselves. That's the most important thing. Gas prices are not typically, you know, the province of a president. Often administrations and politicians don't have control over the price of gas. I think it's simplistic to suggest otherwise. That being said, when it comes to American production of energy here at home, the Biden administration has been explicitly and intentionally hostile to that. And so some of the consequences of their ideological project on this are coming home to roost right now and I think are previewing potential problems in the future also. So OPEC, where, remember, Biden went over to Saudi Arabia to beg, basically, for them to ramp up production, send more oil to us because we're not really doing it here. Gas prices were too high. So this regime in Saudi, in Riyadh, that Biden had called, you know, a pariah, a global pariah, all of a sudden he had to go and ask the pariah for a favor. And amazingly, the pariah wasn't that interested in doing a favor for the president who had said all these things and is cozying up to Iran for reasons that are still baffling to me. So to counteract what we're seeing from OPEC, which is in many ways just a cartel saying, nope, we're going to limit production here. Sorry, price of gas is going to go up. That's where it needs to be. Biden, rather than saying, maybe we've been wrong in this whole project, maybe we should unleash American production and again become energy independent and a net exporter of energy. Nope, that's not what they're doing. Of course not. They're doing more scolding of OPEC, more attacking of the oil companies, warning them not to be greedy. You know, a lot of Putin blaming, obviously, some of which I think is justified. And they are dipping even further into the strategic reserve. We have a strategic reserve, oil reserve, in this country. It is meant for bona fide actual emergencies, not political emergencies, like, uh uh-oh, there's an election coming up, and the gas prices thing could really bury the Democrats, so let's let's, uh, get some of that oil flowing as soon as possible, get, you know, uh, the problem ameliorated slightly. That's not the point of the strategic reserve. It's for big natural disasters, wars, that kind of thing. And by the way, when the Democrats had an opportunity, I think this is key, to refill the strategic reserve, when prices were low, they fought that as well for ideological green environmental reasons. And now here we are. So I would say they are abusing the purpose of the strategic reserve for obviously political reasons. And then they are turning to another part of the world which is what I want to focus on here. Before we do, this is relevant, let's do a little flashback. It might seem like just yesterday that a bunch of Democrats and media leftists were out there screaming about how cruel it was for Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida to mean-spiritedly send illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, one of the nicest vacation destinations in America. It was just human pawns. He's taking advantage of their suffering. It's so cruel and inhumane sending them to, checks notes, Martha's Vineyard. That was their talking point. And part of the talking point was, why? These particular illegal immigrants, who, by the way, did violate the law. There are 
laws and protocols to go by if you want to claim asylum. They did not abide by them. We had Byron York on to talk about that. These particular migrants were from Venezuela. So for just a short little period of time, you had leftists complaining that these Republicans were being playing games and being rude and cruel to these people just trying to flee a terrible communist regime. And the point was to try to make Republicans and paint them, uh, make them look like hypocrites. Oh, they claim like they're against or they say that they're against communism. Here are these people trying to escape communism and they're, they're doing this. They're using them as pawns in a political game. Isn't this awful? So for a couple days, and I said it feels like just yesterday, it wasn't that long ago. It was a couple weeks ago. The Democrats and the left got tough on communism because that was the line that they needed to use to attack Ron DeSantis in the moment. These immigrants were from Venezuela. That was convenient because they were coming from a communist country, and they felt like they could score some political points. So, for example, this point was made on The View by Ana Navarro, Cut 21, Republicans talk every day against communism and against socialism, and yet they have no conscience and no qualms about using victims of communism and socialism as political pawns and a political stunt to get them the base out. How dare you go against communism and use these victims of communism for your political gain? Yeah, so if I rolled my eyes any harder, I would pull a muscle here. But that was Anna doing her shtick. I was going to call it analysis, but come on. And she wasn't alone. That's just an example. We saw that talking point proliferating. It was everywhere. It was ubiquitous for several days. In fact, you say, oh, here's a rando on The View. That doesn't count. Okay, how about the White House podium? This was an official White House talking point as well. Here's Corrine Jean-Pierre, cut 20. Did the White House ever try to get in touch with Governor DeSantis or... Governor Abbott about this to try to reach some type of understanding or a solution? I mean, there's no understanding to be reached. They are using people who are leaving a communist countries as political stunt. So we pointed out that a tiny fraction of the people coming into this country illegally are coming from any of these communist regimes. Some of them probably have bona fide, real, legitimate claims to asylum, a fraction of them. There's a process to go through for that, but the overwhelming majority do not. And in the last year, there were, what, 2 million encounters, 600,000 known gotaways. To pretend that this is all just a Republicans snubbing victims of communism is ridiculous. It does not comport with the facts, but that's what they went with. Look at these poor people fleeing communism, and these Republicans don't even care. They're using them for this stunt. An official White House talking point, the underlying basis of which the assumption being, well, these Venezuelans deserve to be here because, I mean, communism. They're in this terrible communist country. They should be able to come here and seek asylum. The U.S. government does not recognize the Maduro regime, the communist regime in Venezuela, as the legitimate government of Venezuela. The Trump administration and the Biden administration say Juan Guaido is the legitimate leader of that country, but Maduro and his thugs effectively do lead the country because they have not been deposed. They're still in power. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Because of this Wall Street Journal story that I 
mentioned a few moments ago that broke late yesterday. Just listen to this. It all ties together. Quote, the Biden administration is preparing to scale down sanctions on Venezuela's authoritarian regime to allow Chevron Corporation to resume pumping oil there, paving the way for a potential reopening of U.S. and European markets to oil exports from Venezuela. It's not finalized yet, but the Biden administration, according to these reports, is now greenlighting sanctions relief against the communist regime in Venezuela in order to get the oil flowing from that country again. It's, it's just amazing. The horrible communist regime. Oh, awful Ron DeSantis taking these people fleeing communism and sending them to Martha's Vineyard. It's so awful. Don't they care that they're fleeing communism? What an awful regime. What a terrible authoritarian government. Days later, days, the same White House lamenting the mistreatment supposedly of these people fleeing Venezuela and their communist government. The same White House is now moving forward to enrich the regime. That's what sanctions relief will do. It will put money into the pockets of the regime that they don't even acknowledge as legitimate. So I guess while it was convenient for a couple of days, talking about how evil the communist regime in Venezuela, that was a thing that needed to be said on the left, so they said it in order to attack Ron DeSantis. That was the context. That was the prism. That was the template of that attack. And now it's like, okay, well, that's over now. Please, we need your oil. Nicolas Maduro, here's some sanctions relief. Please start that production back up again. All of a sudden, I guess the regime isn't quite so evil anymore. Got to back off those sanctions. It's extraordinary. It seems like the one thing that this crew in the Biden White House won't do is actually expand American energy production. They will beg the Saudis. They will cajole the Iranians who are slaughtering students and women in the streets. They will strike deals with Venezuela. I guess what, all of these carbon emissions don't count if they're from Caracas or Tehran or Riyadh, right? If the drilling is happening somewhere else, what it does, it's called global warming, I thought, right? It's climate change. It's not just a little thing happening. Oh, it's like, oh, over the territorial contiguous United States. Well, if it's not there, it did. Well, and also Alaska, because they won't let it happen in Alaska either. If it happens elsewhere, it doesn't count. We can still be pristine, good, green global citizens. But, hey, this uh, gas price thing is a problem for us politically. So please, 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 Iran, Saudi, Venezuela, go produce the oil. We, we're not going to do it, but you do it. While they're attacking American oil companies as greedy, while demanding that they also lower their prices, produce more, but, oh, by the way, we're going to put you out of business. It is absolutely incoherent and completely driven by politics. Completely driven by politics. So, I mean, I I saw the story break, and I wrote about it today at townhall.com. I had to talk to you guys about it because gas prices and energy costs are a big deal. They'll get big again over the winter, I think, with home heating prices. 
and you have an administration that is willing to go hat in hand to any regime in the world, basically, to beg them to do us a favor to help fix their political problem, and they won't exploit and unleash what we have here at home, which we can do on our own much more safely and cleanly than elsewhere, but it would tick off an element of their left-wing base and the environmentalists, and so that's not an option for political reasons. It's extraordinary. A little bit more on this still to come. A very busy show ahead, just getting started. On this Thursday, it's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Just one more thought on this and referencing back to our exclusive with Condoleezza Rice yesterday. She indirectly dinged the Biden administration for the games that they're playing on leasing and permitting when it comes to energy production here at home, which is relevant to the whole monologue that we open with on gas prices and now this move in Venezuela and the various stunts, panic stunts that Team Biden is attempting here to deal with the energy problem that they have, that they've at least partially created for themselves without actually addressing the elephant in the room, which is American production. And she said, They're telling people, oh, we'll lease, but we won't permit. The talking point from the administration has been, oh, the oil companies are just greedy. Remember this? They've said this over and over again. The oil companies, they have all these opportunities to drill. They're just not doing it. They're choosing not to do it. And part of that is there's no certainty. They're being told by the people in power that they want to put them out of business, but also go and invest a bunch of money in an industry that they're going to try to crush. That doesn't make sense. But they're also just playing rhetorical games, as the Wall Street Journal revealed in an in-depth study that they published last month. Quote, the Biden administration has leased fewer acres for oil and gas drilling offshore and on federal land than any other administration in its early stages dating back to the end of World War II, according to a Wall Street Journal analysis. President Biden's Interior Department leased 126,000 acres for drilling through August 20th, his first 19 months in office. No other president since Richard Nixon in 1969 and 70 leased out fewer than 4.4 million acres at this stage in his first term. The lowest was 4.4 million. Now it's 126,000 under President Biden. And they quote someone in the administration saying, well, the president said he was going to stop leasing and he's been remarkably successful. Remarkably successful indeed. How is that feeling for consumers? What's the impact on energy production? I mean, it's all right there if you just open your eyes. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Broadcasting live from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University this week. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you miss anything today, GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. Podcast is always free and on demand. Seven days a week, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Here with me in studio at Hoover is Dr. Scott Atlas. He is the Robert Wesson Senior Fellow in Health Policy here at Hoover. From July to December of 2020, he served as a special advisor to President Trump and was a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Before his appointment here at Hoover, he was a professor and chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center for 14 years. And doctor, good to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Let's start with your time at the White House for those very interesting and tumultuous months in 2020. I remember well how you were kind of a political lightning rod because you were saying and advising things that were maybe cutting against what others were out there talking about, including Dr. Fauci. The media obviously took sides, as they so often do. Give us just a taste of what it was like inside the administration during that crisis where you were there trying to give your best medical advice while also being criticized from the outside but trying to have an influence on the president from the inside. I just think it's fascinating. Okay. Well, uh, it was challenging, extremely challenging. Uh, let, let's uh, set the scene as that uh, at the end of February, Dr. Burks was appointed head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And for the five, six months before I got to Washington, uh, they were in charge. Fauci was the most visible face of the advice to the public, but the person in charge was Burks, who was the person who wrote all official White House federal policy to the states. She was the person who visited all the states in person, all the local health officials. She was the uh, federal policy, and that federal policy was, for better or worse, uh, not just as an advisor, but the people in charge of it, where they were delegated the authority by the Trump administration. So. The task force was the federal policy. I was called up, uh, asked at first, would I come and advise the president? And, of course, uh, the answer is yes. And if there's something, if anyone who's an American who was asked by the president of the United States to help would say no, I feel there's something seriously wrong with them. Okay, people were dying. Grossly incompetent, incorrect policies were in place. And, and how do I know that? Well, from the results. I mean, first of all, we see over a million American deaths, over two administrations, were, are attributed to COVID. The policies of, of Burks and Fauci were the lockdowns. They were implemented by almost the entire country. They failed. People died from a, a million people plus, and those policies were directly uh, generating massive harm. So I said, okay. I'll come in 
knowing that it would be difficult, knowing that there would be uh, some criticism, of course, but totally unprepared because I'm not political, unprepared for the pushback, for the venom, for the viciousness, uh, and frankly, for the uh, really, you know, uh, very sad uh, and sort of what I call a very vicious treatment by people in the media and in the country who partly were politicized but partly were irrational because of the fear. And part of that fear, by the way, was introduced by the Fauci and Burke's task force, which is not uh, even appropriate, let alone an ethical way, to have public health guidance. You don't, you don't sway people by fear. You sway people by giving them information. So my, my job was to give my best input. People were dying. I didn't care about the consequences to me because, you know, at some point you have to step up, okay? You're, and the funny thing is, in retrospect, most people are never even given the opportunity to do something for their country. Uh, so, you know, I, I said, okay, knowing the sort of political hit job that would happen, uh, I said, okay, I know what I'm talking about. I'm data-driven. And, you know, there was no one on health policy, actually, in the task force. My job for more than a decade was full-time health policy here at Hoover and Stanford. For 14 years before that, I was the head of neuroradiology, a medical scientist with clinical also experience, and, you know, 25-year history of medical scientists. So I was equipped, and probably uniquely so, given who was on the task force, to give input uh, and what know, was your reception from Fauci, Burks, and others? The reception was uh, what you would expect from bureaucrats, but not from scientists. And why do I say that? Well, because I would come in to the task force in preparation for the meeting with two dozen scientific papers in my hands with multiple uh, pages filled with the latest numbers printed out with analyses of the literature. And when I was asked a question by the vice president, for instance, what's the risk to children? I would go through the data, the publications. And when there's uh, data to be discussed, you look at, for instance, the methods, the design of the study. If the design of the study is wrong, it doesn't matter what the conclusions were. That's what a critical thinking medical scientist and data analysis goes through. What I encountered after I would go through my uh, data was there was silence from Fauci, Burks, and Redfield. They never once had a scientific paper in their hands. They never once refuted anything that I said on the data or the science. All I received was, you know, what you would expect from very insecure bureaucrats who are there to cover their, their own image and their own power, and that was ad hominem telling me at the, at the meetings, well, you're an outlier and then running to their friends in the media, who they referred to by first name, by the way. This is something I, I really was not uh, prepared for at all because I'm, I'm not uh, savvy about the way media works at all in Washington, but they certainly were. And so behind my back, they would leak things and just uh, use ad hominem undermining rather than talk about the data, okay, because the only thing that counts is a critical assessment of what's happening, of the information. And then my job was to advise the president or answer his questions and hopefully be able to... Would he pay attention to you or would he just would he get overruled, basically? The next people in the room would be, you know, Fauci or whatever, and it would go away? Or no, Well, I mean, it was very uh, interesting and, and very 
I think, uh, harmful to the public. There were two separate messages going out from the White House. One was the White House task force, Fauci, Burks, the media, the vice president going around and talking to the local officials, talking about we should be locking down. We should close schools. We have to quarantine asymptomatic, positive tested people. Uh, We have to restrict businesses. We have to stop people from gathering in families. And then the president was saying this for months before I got there, uh, which was, We need to open schools. It's very harmful. It's destructive. We can't shut down the economy because shutting down the economy kills people. That's proven. That was known beforehand. And so he was then, I gave him the data because that was exactly correct. We should open the schools. We should do more, I said, to protect the high-risk people. They were not protecting the high-risk people enough. I advocated more frequent testing of nursing home residents, more frequent testing of nursing home staffs. People in nursing homes were dying unnecessarily. That's what happened during the pandemic. I was for increasing testing to the uh, places where there was a more vulnerable population, like historically black colleges and universities. So, and I was for stopping the destruction of our children, stopping the destruction of low uh, income families that were uh, being destroyed, frankly, at the benefit of the affluent. So the president was giving the information uh, to the best of his ability. Uh, the White House task force was giving something totally different, and the media was uh, lying, distorting, and uh, portraying anyone who would disagree with the Fauci Burks lockdowns as being dangerous. What do you think? When last I checked, it is still a requirement. They might have finally lifted this, but the Head Start program, which statistically actually has been a failure and a waste of taxpayer money, but it's this pre-K program. That's a separate comment for another day. The kids in preschool were required to wear masks as of just a few weeks ago still because it's a federal program. What, years after we knew that this was ridiculous and children were overall safe from COVID and the masking in schools? And and here are three, four-year-olds being forced to mask in 2022. Mm -hmm. When you see that, it's clearly not medical science, whatever that is. It must drive you crazy. One of the great sins of America's policy during the pandemic is the total destruction of a younger generation and the complete abuse of our children. And this is a disgrace. And why do I say that? Well, first of all, uh, we were almost alone among our peer nations in the fall of 2020 shutting schools. It was known. It was proven all over the world. It was like a massive real-time experiment globally, and the results were clear. But the, it was proven in spring of 2020, after the spring closures, that online learning was a gross failure, and that there, all the things you learn in school were not learned, meaning conflict resolution, group activities, uh, even language development for young kids, uh, you know, uh, nutritional content of meals for poor families. All this was absent. There were 300,000 cases of child abuse in the spring of 2020 that went unreported because schools are the number one agency for this. Yet America, almost uniquely in the Western world, closed schools for fall of 2020. It's a national disgrace. And a bunch of them, including in this state, and particularly it has to be said in blue areas run by Democrats and unions, they were closed for that entire school year. Absolutely. And I think this is something that we have to realize. The psychological harms were already known from the isolation. 
not from the virus, from the isolation. One out of four college students, age college age students, one out of four by June 2020 contemplated suicide. There was a three out of four people in that age group. We're talking about college age students had at least one serious psychological uh, symptom. There was an explosion during the lockdowns of 2020 in self-harm visits to doctors by teenagers. That means putting cigarettes out on their skin, slashing their wrists. Explosion of teenage girls com- commit, uh, trying suicide. Explosion of anxiety disorder in teenagers uh, and other uh psychological uh, disorders. So all of this stuff was known and it got worse. Uh, Just as one very uh, sort of lesser known fact, in people who are 18 to 24 in the United States, during the 2020 lockdowns, 52%, more than half of people college age, had an unwanted weight gain and the weight gain averaged 28 pounds. Okay, that's obesity and that's a public health crisis in young people specifically. Who were overall safe from the virus, at least, you know, severe COVID or death. That's right. Their healthy children have an extremely low risk of serious illness or death from COVID. That was proven, that was known by spring, summer 2020, irrefutable. Okay. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, the people that did the lockdowns and did the school closures, They killed people. They destroyed our kids. They destroyed particularly poor kids and low-income families' kids. And and again, it's a it's a sin, and a we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg because, as you alluded to, what do you think we did to a generation of young children who were taught that everyone's a danger to them and they are a danger to everyone else? They are a vector for disease. They better be careful. We have not seen the impact of that it remains to be seen on how long term that will be yeah, we're getting little glimpses of it in the data which is very alarming that's right and consistent it's consistent and we knew it then and we doubled down on it so when you see people not just uh, afraid but simply denying the facts about masks this stuff is proven if i, I in fact I, I i won't accept the burden of even talking about the data on masks anymore, because that would be like making people who believe the earth is round, having to keep proving it over and over again to flat earthers. The people that think masks work are the flat earthers of this century. We only have a few minutes left. I wanted to get into all sorts of stuff, single payer healthcare, Obamacare, that'll have to be next time on health policy. But obviously you were there, you were in the room, you gave us some insight into what that was like. Dr. Fauci is, you know, such a big name. Uh, I guess he's going to finally be stepping away from from this role. But he spent a career in public health. Uh, you know, he did some important stuff, I would say, on HIV, AIDS, and other things. He's got a complicated legacy, I would say, and probably a, a pretty negative one in the eyes of certainly many people in this audience. About a minute and a half left. What do you think Fauci's legacy is? That's a great question. The legacy of Dr. Fauci is presiding over the biggest debacle in healthcare policy in modern history. The legacy of Dr. Fauci is the massive destruction of children that will be generation lasting at least. That's the legacy and the third well, he legacy. He says no no I wanted the schools to open and I started saying that or like that that's what he's saying that's now. That's not true. And the legacy of Dr. Fauci is a long-lasting destruction of trust in 
institutions that we need to rely on during times of crises, public health leadership, uh, science itself has been undermined. The public trust in these institutions, we are at a very dangerous point in American history. Dr. Scott Atlas is a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He served for a period of months, about half a year, at the White House as part of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. We heard a little bit about that here. Obviously, he's a medical doctor. He's devoted his life to this stuff. And uh, it's really interesting, doctor, to hear that perspective because I think we'll be talking and studying that era for a very long time to come often for bad and painful reasons, and I think you've explained at least partially why that's the case. Dr. Scott Atlas, great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Guy. And the Guy Benson Show will step aside and be right back. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show, Fox News Alert. Politico reporting that U.S. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, he's been on this show multiple times, is expected to resign his seat in the coming months. He is going to be taking a job reportedly at the University of Florida. So back to academia for Senator Sass. This is extremely unlikely to change anything about the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. That's a very safe red seat. Uh, not sure exactly what the timing here is on that, but... It's just breaking in the last couple minutes, so I wanted to bring that to you. Also a Fox News alert. This from the Washington Post, New York Post summarizing the reporting. Federal agents investigating Hunter Biden believe they have gathered enough evidence to charge the first son with tax crimes, as well as a false statement related to a gun purchase, according to this new report in the Washington Post. A final decision on whether to charge the 52-year-old will be made by Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who was appointed to the Post by former President Donald Trump. The Post, the Washington Post, citing people familiar with the investigation, reported that agents had determined months ago that they had assembled a viable criminal case against Hunter Biden, with the focus shifting to Hunter's overseas business dealings and moving more in the direction of whether or not he reported all of the income related to those business dealings as well as whether he lied about his history of substance abuse on a firearm purchase form in 2018. So the Hunter Biden story rearing its head again. And I see the Biden team and the lawyers are complaining about a leak on this, saying, oh, it's inappropriate. Well, DOG leaks are, we've seen a lot of them recently, haven't we? That's a story that's developing and we're following it. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free of charge. We're broadcasting from the Hoover Institution this week at Stanford in Palo Alto, California. Glad to have you all here with us. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert as we begin here in our middle hour. The Dow, this this roller coaster ride continues back down big today, closing the day down 346 points. That's in the red, dipping below 30,000 again, ending the day at 29,926. 
In a Fox News alert, just breaking news all over the place within the last few minutes. Number one, as we reported last hour, the Washington Post is out with a story saying that investigators believe they have enough information now to charge Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, the president, on potential tax evasion type charges and maybe lying when he bought a gun on his background check. No decision has been made on actual charging, but sources are saying that they think they have enough to charge Hunter Biden. We'll follow that, obviously. We also told you that U.S. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, is going to be resigning his seat, likely to go join the University of Florida potentially as its new president. The reporting now is that he might leave the Senate in the lame duck session in December and could start at UF as soon as February. That is not yet confirmed, but it looks like Sass is on his way out of the Senate. That will be a Republican seat, so it doesn't really shift the balance of power in any likelihood. And then one other story here, President Biden announcing moments ago that he is now pardoning everyone in the country convicted of marijuana possession under federal law and says the U.S. will now review how the drug is classified under federal law. He's encouraging states to do the same on marijuana possession. And it's just a lot coming our way here on this Thursday afternoon. We wanted to make sure that you knew about all of that. And we also wanted to get to our next guest. Tyler Goodspeed joins me now here in studio. He is the Klein Heinz Fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford. And from 2021 to 20. Check that. From 2020 to 2021, he served as acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, having been appointed by the president as a member of that council in 2019. And so he knows a lot about the economy and what it looked like under the previous administration in which he served versus this one now. And, Tyler, it's great to see you. It's good to be with you, Guy. All right. Let's just start with the biggest issue in the country, which is inflation. Uh, I know the story from the Democrats and from the Biden team is it's not really our fault. They've changed their story repeatedly. Uh, But now it's, you know, it's here. It's bad. Hopefully we're turning a corner, but it's not our fault. Overall, big picture as an economic advisor and analyst and expert, what do you make of that political argument? Well, as you said, it's a it's an argument that's been evolving. First, there's no inflation. Then, okay, there's inflation, but it's transitory. Then, tempor- for for a moment, it was here, but it was actually kind of a good thing. And then now, it's just not not the Biden administration's fault. I think that doesn't hold water because if you look at the timing of the divergence of inflation in the United States versus in other major advanced economies in 2021, that timing was concentrated in March 2021. What did we have in March 2021? We had a fiscal stimulus equal to about 10% of the annual output of the entire U.S. economy, and that was completely deficit financed, and we saw a massive increase in demand for goods in that month. Uh, So we had a big run-up in in demand. Directly inflationary. Directly inflationary. And so we had a – I mean, actually, in that month alone, we had an increase in demand for goods – uh, of 11% month over month. That's a 240% annualized rate of growth in demand for goods. Uh, so people talked a lot about supply in 2021. It was actually mostly a story of demand that we were just pouring a ton of fiscal stimulus onto a supply side of the U.S. economy that was still in recovery mode. So we've had a lot of conversations, some on this show, on you know the business network and stuff. We've seen this this phrase out there, soft landing, where people are hoping that the Fed can thread the needle and get us out of this horrible inflation without really throwing the economy into a deep recession. 
it seems to me at least like it's going to be awfully tough to do that given the consistent rampant inflation that we're dealing with. It remains elevated. I think we'll probably get relatively bad numbers again. What's your view on the soft landing, hard landing question? So I, I think it's important to to note with that question that we have a really long way to go from the sort of 7 to 9% inflation that we have now if we look at these core or underlying measures of inflation down to the Fed's 2% target. And the lesson of, of history in the 1970s and in the 1980s is it's really hard to do that without breaking something. And we actually saw a bit of a preview in the United Kingdom uh, a couple weeks ago when you had pension funds that in order to meet their, their obligations, they had been leveraging up a lot. And so when bond yields in, in, the, in the UK started to go up, i.e. bond prices started to go down, uh, pension funds got into a lot of trouble. And I think we could see something similar here, that whether it's pension funds, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's just overnight funding issues, I, I think the chances of something breaking are very high. The jobs picture has been interesting because overall it's been one of the bright spots in this economy now for a while, and the Biden administration loves taking credit for it. I like to look at the map and see where a lot of those jobs are being created, and it's often in states that aren't following the the Biden approach to economics. But, you know, he's president. He's trying to claim credit wherever he can, especially given his terrible numbers on the economy. At some point, does that relative winning streak, you know, run out? Does it stop? If inflation starts to come down because the Fed is basically throttling demand and, and harming the economy on purpose, does that start to creep into the jobs numbers? I know we're waiting on a jobs report very soon, I think tomorrow. Is that something that could start to get dicey? Yes. The the typical pattern would be we first we see companies start to reduce the number of job openings. And we, st- we saw that in August. This, this data comes out with a bit of a lag, but we saw that in August with the vacancy number of job openings dropping by, I think, about a million jobs. There are still more vacant jobs than there are unemployed workers, uh, but I would, I would expect to see that number come down further before we start to see outright layoffs uh, because usually it goes they, they cut the number of job openings, then they start cutting hours, then they start laying off workers. But one thing – Like hiring freezes start to happen somewhere in there yep, too, right? Yep, that sort of that, – that's a middle line, step. Yep, with, along with uh, – yeah, first they, they stop – posting new jobs, then they start cutting the job postings that they already have, implementing hiring freezes, start to, to reduce hours, and then they lay off workers. And do you think that's likely? I think that's already happening. Uh, they are, they, we, we saw a cut in the number of job openings. Um, I think the next shoe to drop will be you know, declining hours. Um, but one thing that I think has been supporting the labor market thus far this year, which ha- people haven't really been talking about as much, is that the, the cost of labor has actually been going down because wages haven't been keeping pace with inflation. So in real terms, real, real wages are actually declining, and they right. have been for the past 18 months. Which is obviously bad news. It's bad news for workers. It does incentivize employers to hold on to labor for a little bit longer than they might otherwise would because, hey, the cost of labor is going down in real terms. Uh, so that, I think, has been cushioning the blow to the labor market in terms of job losses. Um, but eventually we, we will start to see outright layoffs. Less than a minute. Is there something like what would be the number one policy change you would recommend? Not that they listen to you, but if you could, you know, what would be the number one thing you would at least try right now? 
Uh, the easiest, I think, would be to roll back a lot of the energy regulations that were implemented pretty much on day one of the Biden administration that <laughs> throttled U.S. energy production. They're not going to do that. They're yeah. not going to do that. Yeah, they're going to go hat in hand to the Saudis and the Iranians and the Venezuelans, and the Venezuelans, as we just talked about earlier in the show, as opposed to doing precisely that, which is maddening. But this is their ideological project that they've constructed for themselves, and they're trying to dodge responsibility for it. Accountability might be coming November the 8th. Just a thought. But Tyler Goodspeed, it's great to see you here at the Hoover Institution. Thanks for dropping by. Great to be with you. We'll step aside. We'll be right back. Short break on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So we talked yesterday here on the show to Dr. Oz, who's the Republican nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania in a race that has become very tight and is now a toss-up, according to the Cook Political Report. Could go either way. Really interesting conversation with Oz. I will admit I have become more impressed with him as the campaign has gone on. It seems like he's hitting his stride, very disciplined in his messaging, Thoughtful, he's engaging, which makes sense. He was like a TV doctor, kind of knows how to perform. But if you missed it, you can go to GuyBensonShow.com and listen to that interview. And I encourage you to do so. Now, part of the reason that we're focused on that race so much, obviously, is because it is pivotal. It could end up deciding control of the Senate. So it would be, I think, malpractice for us, given what we do here, not to talk about it a lot. But I will also say this. Part of the reason that I have focused as much of my personal attention on the race, and this has increased as the race has progressed, is because John Fetterman, the Democrat in this contest, on a visceral level bothers me. It's not just that I think he's wrong about almost everything, and he's like obnoxiously, snarkily wrong about everything. Democrats who are wrong, in my mind, are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere, right? There's a reason why I'm a conservative, because I don't think that the Democrats and the progressive agenda is a good thing that will succeed for the country. But it goes beyond that with this guy. He is just such a deadbeat. I just don't understand how this person has the reputation of this real blue-collar, working-class guy, it doesn't work. Working-class people work. They work hard. This guy does not and seemingly never has. I'll get more into that here in a second, but we've talked about the incident when he was mayor of this failing little city in Pennsylvania, where, as George Whale pointed out, a huge portion of the population just left because it was so desolate. And so desperate, there are massive rates of crime, poverty. John Fetterman, that was like his claim to fame. He ran that city, a little small place. And it is not somewhere that many people are flocking to live. Let's put it that way. They're flocking away. So then he failed up to become lieutenant governor in the state of Pennsylvania. But while he was mayor, at one point, he heard gunshots or thought he heard gunshots and he ran out with a shotgun and pointed it at and stopped a random black person 
who was just out for a jog. This was someone jogging, getting some exercise. Fetterman, I guess, got disoriented, confused, thought this person was running away, was a criminal, and held this innocent person at gunpoint. That is something that actually happened. Fetterman's a white guy, in case you haven't seen him. Big, hulking, white guy with a goatee and just tattoos all over the place. So that is a thing. I know the Oz campaign is highlighting that incident and some allies also highlighting that incident in ads, particularly in Philadelphia. There was also this. Here's something else that happened. Fetterman, back in 2010 as mayor, admitted to, was caught on camera and admitted to vandalizing a black-owned business in his city. Cut 16. Get this. It is showing that man right there. He is a local mayor, and believe it or not, what he's headed to do, he's about to vandalize the sign at a local business in his town. Channel 4 Action News reporter Sheldon Ingram live tonight, or Sheldon is reporting the story. He says the mayor admitted he did it. Mayor John Fetterman shows us how he rearranged the wording on a club he doesn't even own. He actually knew he was captured by surveillance cameras, but he didn't care. In fact, he says he wanted to be seen on camera. I know that they have cameras out front, and it was my way of putting them on notice. So it was a very public way uh, that I chose to, you know, put them on notice that, hey, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're going to shut you down. Now, obviously that was pre-stroke. That was years ago. So he was at least not slurring or stumbling on his words, which isn't his fault, but also you need to be able to talk and communicate if you want to be a U.S. senator. And ducking debates and serious interviews, I think, is a bad look for the campaign. As Oz said on the show yesterday, they're trying to run out the clock with almost no scrutiny. And now we understand why. I'm sure he doesn't want to answer questions about chasing down a black jogger with a gun or vandalizing a local business in his town as mayor, a black-owned business. He said he was trying to send a message to that business on crime. Well, he's also incredibly soft on crime. I actually wonder if he's doing penance, progressive, quote-unquote, penance for the incidents that I just mentioned by going super soft on crime to try to get activists back on side, which I suppose worked in the sense that he has grown in his profile and now he's the nominee for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania and has at least a 50-50 chance of becoming a senator. The Associated Press has a story out today that reviews his schedule as lieutenant governor. And in approximately, I think they said slightly more than one-third of the days in his service as lieutenant governor, he just had no schedule. It was blank. He was doing nothing. The story also notes that on many of the days where he was working, it was like four or five hours. Must be nice. Like, what has this guy done? He was this small city mayor of a failing town, his lifestyle subsidized by mom and dad, giving him tens of thousands of dollars every year to live off of because he wasn't working. Then he got himself elected lieutenant governor and wasn't showing up for that job either. The only thing he seemed to faithfully, passionately show up for was the parole board, where he would vote overwhelmingly time after time to let dangerous criminals and murderers out of prison early there was one incident getting highlighted this week where he showed up and he was the only vote on the board everyone else unanimously said no this guy stays behind bars fetterman voted to let a convicted gang member first degree murderer first degree murderer 
who had planned the execution of a teenager, beat him to death with a baseball bat. John Fetterman can't be bothered to really show up for work very often, Mr. Working Class. But the one thing that he would do is go to the parole board to let murderers out of jail, including the first-degree murderer who killed a 17-year-old with a baseball bat. And everyone else on the panel is like, no way, but not John Fetterman, who now doesn't want to talk about crime. Oh, it's all not true. It's all a distortion. It's a Republican attack. He didn't pay his taxes over and over again. He wants to raise the taxes of Americans in the U.S. Senate. He wouldn't pay his own taxes. He's against school choice, even though his kids go to private school. Like We can probably guess who pays for that. He wants to deny that opportunity to other kids, but he wasn't paying the taxes to fund his local public schools, which he supports so much, supposedly. Dead beat. I can't believe he's anywhere near the U.S. Senate, and yet here we are. That's why I'm so fired up about this race. I'm warming to Oz, and to say that I am chilly on Fetterman is an understatement. For all of the reasons that I just outlined and more. Like, what an embarrassment. I would be embarrassed to seek public office if this were my record. But I guess shamelessness is actually rewarded in our politics today. And one case in point is John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. No thank you. The Guy Benson Show continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back here at Stanford University and the Hoover Institution, Palo Alto, California. It's the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you all along. The Guy Benson Show website is easy. You might have guessed it, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, always free, on demand, every day, should you miss a moment as we air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, 12 to 3 here in the West. Joining us now is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. You can follow him, as I do, on Twitter, at TomBevanRCP. Tom, great to have you back. Great to be with you. All right, let's just get a sense on what you're seeing out there in the polling, in the data. We talked to Josh Krasauer earlier in the week about the vibe shift that seemed to move toward the Democrats over the summer that now seems to be moving back away and toward the Republicans, sort of back toward the type of environment that perhaps we would have anticipated in a vacuum, given just the facts and the factors that we know of that are playing into this cycle. What is your assessment of where things stand as we close in on a month to go before this election? Yeah, I mean, I I do think the fundamentals of this election, when you – you know, when you step back and look at the 30,000-foot view of this thing, given, you know, the economic numbers, uh, given inflation, given the president's job approval rating, the direction, you know, right track, wrong direction of the country, generic congressional ballot, you take all of those things into account. And it, it certainly seems like, you know, the, the momentum favors Republicans. Um, and, and we've seen some of that in the generic congressional polling. We've seen some of that in some of these Senate races. But it's it's they're not running away with it. Um, they certainly have moved into lead in the generic congressional ballot. Um, but but Democrats, this is not like a blowout situation where Republicans are are gonna you know run away with forty fifty seats in the House and and you know three four five seats in the Senate. It looks like um, it's going to be 
something less than that. And Democrats clearly are energized and they're pouring everything they have into the abortion issue. Um, the only problem for them is, is that issue, you know, it resonates with their base, but it doesn't resonate with certainly not with the Republicans, but, but it's well down on the list for independents as well. And that, that could be really um, the trade-off that they're making is they're going to, they're going to energize the heck out of their base, to try and keep their losses to a minimum. But by doing that, they won't be able to, to reach across the aisle and reach some of those moderate and, and swing voters. But that could just be kind of like triage on their part, right? Saying yes. in their minds, we're going to lose the House. Let's try to at least get our base out to limit those losses. And then maybe with some flawed candidates on the Republican side in the Senate, we can hang on to the Senate majority by a threat. It seems like that's kind of their default mentality at this point. Probably not what they want to have to deal with, but the reality that they're facing sort of paints that picture. No, I think that's right. And, and uh, you know, most of the – I would say almost all of the Democratic candidates have tons of money to spend, and, and they are using that to their advantage. I mean, you take a look at a place like Arizona where, you know, Blake Masters is running well behind uh, – I shouldn't say well behind. He's, he's three to five points behind Mark Kelly, who's outspent him 10 to 1. I mean, 52 million, I think, Kelly spent in that race so far with, with you know, four and a half weeks to go. Um, they're only going to have one debate, uh, and that's going to be the case in Pennsylvania as well and some of these other states. So I think there will be two debates in Ohio. But, uh, you know, I think Democrats are, are sort of banking on the idea that that they're going to turn out their base. The economy is what the economy is. They know it's, a, they know it's an albatross for them, so they're not even going to really try and argue anything. But, uh, you know, the Republicans are, are – Awful candidates, awful people, and and they want to you know strip away your right to choose. Right, and democracy's at stake. That's the other one, right? I'm not sure that's resonating either, based on some of the numbers that I've seen. But it seems like they're all in on the Democratic side on abortion and democracy, which is also a little bit ironic because the Dobbs decision that they're so angry about restores the issue to the Democratic process and to democracy. But you know. That's perhaps a more nuanced point than they are expecting people to grasp or latch on to. But that's the playbook here. Republicans, meanwhile, we talked about this yesterday, Tom. Multiple national surveys now showing, number one, inflation and economy, and then right up there, maybe number two in the Monmouth poll, for example, crime. If those are the top two issues that voters are thinking about on November the 8th or leading up to November the 8th, Republicans have substantial leads on both of them. That has to be something of a big red flag for the Democrats. It is, and it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, while this looks like it could be a, a close election, um, that's one of those issues that, that, you know, could, if it breaks really hard in the Republican way, you could see a lot of these, these uh, you know, toss-up races uh, the Democrats are defending in swing districts really, you know, break against them. And, and that could be something that powers Republicans to a bigger a bigger win than most people are expecting. Uh, the crime is, again, economy inflation, that's been the number one issue for months. That's not that really hasn't changed. Um, but crime has really, I think, crept up in the public consciousness. And Republicans are running ads about it all over the country. In Wisconsin, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, they are hammering. The Democratic candidates on on the issue of crime, and the other thing that we've seen show up in the data is that, you know, African American voters are less enthusiastic about this election, you know, uh, than 
than other sections of the electorate. And that's something that, you know, when you think about Philadelphia, uh, when you think about Milwaukee and, and some of these urban areas, uh, Democrats need African-Americans to turn out in big numbers. And, and that might be something that might be the, the weakest portion uh, of their base as of right now. Yeah. Turn out in big numbers and also turn out overwhelmingly for Democrats. And if you can chip away at either of those margins, that is the type of thing that could lead to maybe some surprises in certain places. I do want to ask you, Tom, about the issue of polling. That's sort of a realm in which you marinate and have for a long time at Real Clear Politics. Sort of inside baseball question, but how do you guys decide what polls are worthy of making it into your averages and your aggregation, uh, you know, formulas and algorithms? Because I see polls occasionally floating around on social media that are just obviously garbage, like people sharing in the last day or two one poll that has Fetterman up like 20 in Pennsylvania and Tim Ryan up by 11 points in Ohio and even Democrats that I know are saying there's no chance this is anywhere close to true and yet they're out there these are I guess publicly available surveys of races people are watching Uh, you know on the other side of things you've got Trafalgar for example that Democrats roll their eyes and say that's a Republican pollster and he's only got you know a two-point race in the New York governor's race which which seems a little implausible I would say and yet Trafalgar's been pretty correct in a couple really big races where other more established and respected pollsters have faltered and gotten it very wrong in recent cycles. Is there a track record thing that comes into play? I'm just wondering what that looks like internally for you guys. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're constantly evaluating uh, all of these pollsters, and, and you do. I mean, every, every cycle you have someone who will pop up out of nowhere and the group that you're speaking about is called Center Street Pack, and they're mm-hmm. they're a you know they're an anti-Trump. Quite frankly, Joe Walsh is one of the founders, who is a former congressman from Illinois and a radio talk show host. He's like a virulent anti-Trumper, um, and they ha- are polling in these races almost explicitly with the the intent of of trying to influence the narrative, manipulate polling averages, and and so that's one that was pretty easy call for us uh, in terms of not not using them in our averages. We typically don't use, we don't use any campaign polls. We don't use any polls that are sponsored by partisan uh, packs of any kind from the left or the right. Now, we do use, you know, like we label Trafalgar as a Republican pollster. We label PPP, for example, as a Democratic-leaning pollster. Um, but so long as those polls are being done for the public and not being done for any specific campaign, uh, we'll use those in our average. So it's a, it's a constant uh, evaluation process, and, and we're actually going to have more on this uh, in the next week or two um, where we're going to be going more public with – because I think there is a crisis in polling. I mean the public simply does not believe right. uh, a lot of these numbers anymore, and that's, that's obviously you – know, it presents a problem for us as the aggregator of polls, uh, but even more broadly for sort of the institution of, of polling and, and of media, quite frankly – um, and there needs to be accountability, and there, there simply hasn't been any uh, over the past few cycles as pollster after pollster um, has, has gotten it wrong, in some cases terribly wrong, and, and you know, there never seem to be any consequences for that. So we'll have more on that in the coming days and weeks. In, in what respect? Like maybe just pulling back the curtain a little bit, some transparency about what your process is? Uh, 
Well, we'll actually be do, we'll actually be be evaluating these pollsters over the past few cycles and sort of putting out a, a ah. public report card and holding them accountable for um, not only their past results but for this this election in particular because this is one of those elections where uh, you know we've seen a lot of talk about pollsters and whether the polls are right or not and and I think this is one of those uh, especially leading into 2024 this is a critical election for pollsters they need to get it right. And the ones who do get it right need to be, I think, rewarded and lifted up. And those who don't need to be really uh, suffer some 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 consequences yep. and some accountability. No, I think that's right, because, you know, one that comes to mind is I'll occasionally see, you know, Quinnipiac state level polling, which has been just atrociously bad in a number of states for the last decade. And you can think off the top of your head of some of their huge, huge misses, then they drop a new poll and everyone goes gaga again, like, oh, look what's happening in Georgia or whatever. It's like, well, don't you remember how wrong they were in all these places just recently? And yet they filter into these averages with you guys and 538 and you sit there as a consumer of this stuff and try to scratch your head. It's like, you know, what what would prevent them from getting it wrong over and over again if it doesn't really affect their standing in this whole world. So I think that's a very interesting thing. One other quick question on this. You mentioned you don't do campaign polls, which are sometimes known as internals, right? So the campaign will release their numbers. Often it's a narrative type thing, trying to push back against a narrative or say, hey, look, we're really ahead or we're really close. It's more competitive than people think. And sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's self-serving. It makes perfect sense to me for you guys not to include those in your averages. That being said, the only challenge I would have on that is back in 2016, pretty famously after that election, which was a huge surprise to basically everyone with the Trump victory, none of the pollsters saw that coming. All of the experts, for the most part, were wrong. And one of the only clues that people retroactively said, retrospectively said, was campaign internal polls that were not made public because, frankly, a lot of people, even in the campaigns, didn't believe them, in House races were suggesting on the ground that actually Trump was doing a lot better than the state and national level polling suggested. Those were the only breadcrumbs maybe out there pointing data-wise to what was about to come. I just wonder how you grapple with that, at least that anecdote and that example from 2016. Yeah, I mean... There's a counter argument to that too, which is, you know, Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report was talking, uh, you know, uh, last cycle about all the internal polls that he was seeing that that were going to uh, actually was it 20 might have been uh, might have been 2014 I think um, that uh, you know were showing the Democrats were going to actually you know pick up seats and there was all this information and. You know, led him to to predict that there was going to be a Democratic pickup of of you know fourteen fifteen seats. It turned out to be the exact opposite. Republicans picked up fourteen seats, and and that came as a bunch of surprise. So I, you know, th- these these campaign internal polls. To your point, um, there is the argument that listen, this is a they're they're valuable because uh, you know campaigns are paying for them, and they they really want to know what the actual scoop is. Because um, it doesn't serve them internally to be looking at data that's flawed or wrong. Um, on the other hand, they also are used, as you mentioned, for narrative pushing, sure. influencing, manipulation purposes. 
uh, with the media. And so you got to be careful with those. Um, yeah, and it's a good point because, like, I cited one example of one cycle where maybe the internal polls were telling an untold story that needed to be told. But as you say, there are counterexamples, and you can get a false positive. And then uh, I think probably net-net you guys are making the right call. I just wanted to raise it because I think it's interesting. And that polling crisis that you referenced is, is absolutely real. And we'll be definitely delving into that over the coming four-plus weeks and then looking at the polls versus the outcomes yet again after November the 8th. Our guest here is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com, at Tom Bevan, RCP on Twitter. Tom, always enjoy chatting. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every day. I saw this from Josh Rogan, who is a China expert, wrote a book on China. He's a Washington Post columnist. He's been on the show here before. The U.N. Human Rights Council. What a body that is. And we have really torched them in the past for good reason. In fact, for reasons exactly like this. The Human Rights Council had a vote on whether or not to even debate the genocide being perpetrated by the Chinese regime against the Uyghur minority population. Should there be a debate in the Human Rights Council over an active genocide? That was the question on the table. And of those countries who voted, because a bunch of them just wimped out and abstained, like what even is the point? What is the point of a human rights organization, supposedly with some authority, although not really, What is the point of it existing if they won't even talk about a genocide that's happening? And a bunch of the members sitting on the council don't even want to have the vote. So they just stay neutral. They abstain. But of those countries that did vote, a majority voted no, voted against the debate on the Uyghur genocide. Led, of course, by China, because, yes, China is on the Human Rights Council. They were a no, as were a bunch of the left-wing countries, Bolivia, Venezuela, Cuba, and then other countries that are beholden to China, like Pakistan and various African countries. So there were 17 yes votes, mostly from Western democracies, 19 no votes, and the decision was there will not be a debate in the Human Rights Council, quote-unquote, at the United Nations over a genocide that the Chinese Communist Party is perpetrating on its own people. What a disgrace, first of all, and what a sick joke the U.N. is in so many ways. The Trump administration pulled us out of the Human Rights Council, saying it was irredeemable, right? There was no point in dignifying it or legitimizing it with our presence at all. That was the right decision. Based on the roster of countries that sit on this thing, unto itself it's ridiculous, But the Biden people, oh, multilateralism, you know, it's a global approach. This is how they do foreign policy. It's a fetish for them. So they got America right back into this thing so we could be one of 17 countries to vote and fail to even talk about a genocide. How's that going? What is the purpose of the United States giving any legitimacy to this twisted farce aside from multilateralism and platitudes? That's it. So China gets the win. They get to do the genocide 
and then lead a coalition to block discussion of the genocide at the Human Rights Council. Preposterous and enraging. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Howie Kurtz is here talking media next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. On this Thursday, thank you so much for being here. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, and between 5 and 6, our final hour in the Eastern time zone. I guess out here it's 2 to 3 Pacific time, as we're doing the show from the Hoover Institution this week at Stanford. It's the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We love it for all the reasons that we told you about. Many of you have tried it. Long Drink is blowing up for good reason. Check it out, thelongdrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com for more information, including the expanding list of where they are sold. Our website here, guybensonshow.com, G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N show.com. Podcast free, on demand every day. On social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Send us a follow, send us some messages, hopefully some positive feedback. We also have some bonus content on those feeds. With us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz. Every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, I'll be on the program this coming weekend. Looking forward to that. I think I'm joining in studio when I'm back in D.C. Howie is also host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter, foxnewspodcast.com. You can also follow him, as I do, on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. Howie, always good to talk to you. Same here, Guy. Nice uh, little promo there. Absolutely. I mean, I always plug Media Buzz whenever you're on, but I feel an extra incentive to do so when I'm on the rundown. Right. It's fair. Um, I want to play you this sort of strange montage. It was put together by my colleagues at townhall.com. It was triggered, the reason that they went back and called all of these clips and put them together and stitched them into this little clip is Biden, the president, President Biden, earlier in the week, was speaking to some Hispanic group and was kind of arguing that he was raised in the Puerto Rican community, which made no sense to me. But it turns out this is kind of the type of thing that he says to different identity groups when he addresses them on a somewhat regular basis. Here's a partial roundup, cut 25. I, I, I got raised in the black church. He knows I'm not kidding. I got my education for real. In the black church. And that's not hyperbole, it's a fact. I probably uh, went to shul more than many of you did. <laughs> you all think I'm kidding. He can tell you. I'm I uh, was sort of raised uh, in the Puerto Rican community at home politically. I just have one thing to say. All right. Yeah, so this was the last one there, Howie. He was at a Hispanic group, and he held up his cell phone and played Despacito, which was kind of a weird choice. But based on that montage, he was raised in the black church. He was attending Jewish services all the time. He was raised in the Puerto Rican community. It just seems a little bit odd, maybe more than a little bit odd, 
And yet the only place I see any scrutiny of this is in conservative media. Is this just a nothing story, or does this deserve a little bit of attention from the press, given he's the president of the United States? Joe Biden, man of many faiths. I don't quite <laughs> see what the problem is. Look, it's an it's a age-old form of ethnic pandering, and uh, I don't, particularly don't understand the Hispanic community reference. He did hold a uh, Yom Kippur uh, dinner at the White House, so maybe he has gone to some Jewish temple services. Uh, but look, um, Joe Biden has a natural tendency to exaggerate. I don't think that's breaking news. No. And when he does it like this, you know, obviously he's campaigned in black churches. Uh, I don't think it's a, a political felony, but I do think it's kind of a misdemeanor, and I do think it deserves some attention. Yeah, and I think if there were some white Republican out there saying I was raised in the black church, raised in the Puerto oh. Rican community, I mean, and, and it was even partially dubious, I think there would be all sorts of cultural appropriation and disgusting racist pandering, and I mean, there would be... I think more of a firestorm, more of a hullabaloo over this. It would be probably treated as a political felony, to use your framing. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, I think, you know, look, the, the natural tendency of many journalists covering this president, except when he makes such a complete uh, blatant series of errors as in Afghanistan and a whole bunch of other things, is to kind of give him a pass, is to not subject him to the same kind of scrutiny. I mean, I often find myself on the show, in my columns, saying, well, imagine if Donald Trump had done that. And you, you instantly know uh, that if that had been the case, uh, you know, something that's not considered a story, like, you know, on the business about Joe Biden, where's Jackie, where he seemed to be looking into the crowd at the White House for the congresswoman who passed away in a car accident. MSNBC didn't cover it. CNN didn't cover it on the air. Now, imagine if Donald Trump had done that, looking for somebody who wasn't. Well, they had multiple analysis. Oh, yeah. They had people uh, on their air right over and over again. Is President Trump mentally ill? They would have psychologists and psychiatrists on the air trying to assess medically Donald Trump based on something that he had said or done, like, you know, Zapruder filming stuff. And yet here we are with Biden, and it's sort of like, oh, it's just a, a weird foible that the right is having fun with. It's not really a thing. I mean, it's not it's not subtle exactly what they decide to play up and play down. Uncle Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah or great, great Uncle Joe or Grandpa Joe, whatever it is. Um, right, he's, right. he's been doing stuff like this for a long time, although it is, I think, getting worse and getting weirder. On the double standards and on sort of media coverage of certain things or lack thereof, this week our colleague Tucker Carlson interviewed again this guy, Tony Bobolinsky, who worked with Hunter Biden. There's no disputing that. And he says he witnessed a lot of evidence personally, firsthand, that Joe Biden is being dishonest about his knowledge or involvement in Hunter Biden's business dealings abroad. He's got voicemails and emails and all of this stuff. We heard from Bobolinsky back in 2020. Almost no one would touch it beyond a handful of outlets. The mainstream, typically pro-Democrat outlets Absolutely wanted nothing to do with it. That was back, Howie, when they were also claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop story was a hoax. It was Russian disinformation, which is what the Biden campaign labeled it. And then everyone just fell in line, including social media. You and I have talked about that many times. And I think Bobolinsky was just sort of lumped into that category and completely ignored. Well, here he is speaking out again two years later. And virtually everyone now sheepishly admits, at the very least, 
that the laptop story was not Russian disinformation. There was some real there there, some smoke, perhaps fire to that story. And they've come around belatedly to admitting that or conceding the point now that I guess Trump is safely defeated and Biden's in office. I would think without having any really stake in the fight of how credible Tony Bobolinsky is, I don't think anything that he has alleged has been actively discredited. I haven't seen any of his facts or evidence debunked. You would think that maybe he would warrant a second look from people who were profoundly non-curious in his allegations two years ago, and yet it kind of feels like, again, this is a Tucker or Fox story, and all the usual suspects, again, are saying, we're just going to take a pass. Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it there, which is if Bob Lenke had given the same interview, and I haven't studied the latest uh, allegations intensely, uh, to, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal, to Politico, USA Today, you name it, then I think it would have gotten attention. There's a tendency maybe to dismiss something that was on Fox. At the same time, I thought we were in a different environment after New York Magazine did this very candid cover story saying the Hunter Biden scandal is not going away. There's a lot there. Democrats are in denial. The medium performance was embarrassing, certainly back in 2020, um, but apparently not. And I, it takes no great predictive crystal ball power on my part uh, to say that if, as is very likely, the Republicans take over the House uh, after November, we are going to see a lot of investigations of Hunter Biden. That doesn't mean that his father, the president, uh, was in on it. But look, everybody knows what Hunter Biden was doing. Uh, using his father's name and influence, particularly when he was VP, to drum up business around the world and stuff that he knew nothing about. It's the worst kind of buck-raking. A lot of people in both parties do it, relatives of public officials. That doesn't make it right. And then you throw in the laptop, uh, Hunter uh, having been a drug addict. I mean, it's just a mess. Yeah, that's right. And I think the biggest scandal, and I'll just leave this part of the conversation here, in my estimation – the biggest scandal related to this, at least that we can verify, is the media's role. It is a media scandal. I think there's probably some corruption or unseemly, unsavory stuff going on, and I would like answers on all of it. But what I know is that it's a media scandal because this was a bona fide story that was deemed not a story by a political campaign, and journalists and social media platforms just went with that. And still to this day, even after some grudging mea culpas, they don't really want to look into it. And I think it sort of speaks for itself, and it does not speak well to the idea that anyone really learns any lessons in this media environment. And it also explains why so many people do not trust so many elements of the media today. Howie, let's talk about Hurricane Ian, the coverage of the hurricane I think sometimes when there's a natural disaster, cable news does wrench itself away from sort of the partisan shout fest and get serious. I think we saw a lot of good coverage across the board of a very important event down in Florida. Now we're starting to see some of the politics creep back in, which was inevitable. Just your overall assessment of the media's role in this episode. You know, what was refreshing was to see President Biden and Ron DeSantis not just cooperating uh, in dealing with the fallout, the rebuilding, the devastating damage from the hurricane, but praising each other. Biden said the governor had done a remarkable job. So they were able, you know, these are two guys who don't agree on anything just about and could run against each other in 2024, but they were able to be grown-ups 
put politics aside and do what was best for the people of Florida. The media didn't even wait until, you know, all the people who were trying to be rescued were rescued. They immediately started it on climate change. I'm not saying there's no place for climate change in this discussion, but, you know, maybe wait a day or two until we have a more accurate picture of the uh, death and devastation. And, and, and you're seeing that more now as, as well. And so I think the media have been far more aggressive in um, the coverage of the hurricane. And DeSantis has scolded the press on several occasions. Um, and I think it is true that the, many in the press were hoping that this would somehow, that the DeSantis would bobble it and this would hurt his reputation. And it hasn't happened. He has, yeah. by all accounts, done a good job, as has FEMA. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it, I mean, it sounds so cynical and almost crazy to say out loud that the, much of the press was rooting for it to be worse. And even if that suffering had to happen, it would be for a good cause, which was to take Ron DeSantis down a peg or two. But I think there are a bunch of partisan zealots in the news media who absolutely think that way. And you can see them at the margin, the sort of ankle biting, trying to turn this into Katrina, trying to pretend like DeSantis lied about something. It just isn't playing because the results are what they are. They've been very engaged. The governor's been highly competent, I would say. And when Joe Biden shows up, and he welcomes the president to Florida, thanks him profusely for all the federal help. And then the president turns around, this Republican governor who's very critical of Biden and vice versa, and he says he's done a good job and it's been remarkable what they've accomplished down there. I mean, it sort of takes the wind out of the sails of anyone trying to maybe prop up a narrative, which some have been at least attempting to do. Yeah, and then I, I saw at one of the many news conferences, a reporter asked, well, what was the tone of your discussion with Ron DeSantis? This is before the visit to Florida yesterday. And Biden said it's irrelevant. Uh, you know, try to brush it away. It doesn't matter that they don't like each other politically, which is kind of like the minimum standard that you would expect. Yes. It's probably the worst natural disaster ever to hit Florida, that they would cooperate. Yes, I think that's exactly right. You said it was refreshing. I agreed. I said that on the show yesterday. We played some of the sound from the joint event that they held. And I said, this is, yes, the bare minimum, but it is still good to see. Howie, I want to ask you a question, and I'm not sure if this is sort of a curveball for you, but I asked a few of our meteorologist guests about this. And because you cover the news media as a beat, you might have a take on this, maybe not. But there was, and sometimes we'll see this during very serious weather events, where news organizations send reporters down to the field often in very dangerous conditions, and they're out there with the camera and, you know, everything's blowing and flying around them, and it, it makes for dramatic imagery. But there was the one viral clip in Hurricane Ian where one guy got smacked pretty hard by debris that was flying, and a lot of people were asking the question, is it ethical, is it necessary journalistically to have people doing these live shots in harm's way for the sort of the clicks and the eyeballs? Is it really serving a journalistic purpose when someone – their safety could be at risk. Their life actually could be at risk doing this. And I sort of see both sides of that debate, and I wonder what you make of it. Yeah, no, it's a hanging curve for me because I addressed it on the show, which is I think it is a little bit crazy. That guy who got hit by the flying branch, Jim Cantori of the Weather Channel, had that branch hit him at a different angle, he could have been seriously injured. And maybe there was a case 15 years ago that reporters, and saying some of this goes back to Dan rather and you know, proving your macho uh, manhood to stand out in 150 mile an hour winds. But now in the age of social media, when you have thousands, sometimes millions of people 
posting better video than the television cameras can get. Uh, there was one person who posted a picture of a shark being swept away by the storm surge in one in one of the harder heart hit parts of Florida. Um, I think I wouldn't do it. I think it's it's done. It's a little bit of a stunt. It is good for ratings. It's certainly dramatic television because you're wondering what's going to happen next. But I think it's nest. It's less necessary today when we have so much original video coming from people on the ground who are obviously closer than any news organization could get. No, I think that's a very fair and insightful answer. Not surprisingly, from Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. I'll be on this coming weekend, God willing. He also hosts the podcast Media Buzz Meter at Howard Kurtz on Twitter. Howie, always enjoy it. See you on Sunday. See you on Sunday. Thanks. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, one more note on the media. I just can't resist this one. I'd forgotten about this totally. Back in 2017, when Trump was president, there was a big storm in Texas. And Trump and the First Lady went to Texas to survey the damage. And Melania, the First Lady, was, I guess, wearing heels as she walked out to the helicopter to then go to the plane. And this became a big story and a controversy where it was, I guess, bad optics and tone deaf to wear these high heels on your way to the devastation. And there were a bunch of stories. Stephen Miller pointed this out, at Red Steez on Twitter. And it's just like one story after another from Vogue, from BuzzFeed, from the Washington Post, from the Hollywood Reporter. It was like this little mini tempest about this bad look, Melania, and her high heels. I had forgotten completely about it. Well, when the president and the first lady left for Florida yesterday, Dr. Jill Biden was wearing, you guessed it, heels on her way out to Marine One. And there was not an explosion of outrage, fake outrage, about that choice in footwear and how tone deaf it was and how cruel or really cold, mean-spirited, thoughtless. We didn't get any of that. And we shouldn't have. It's ridiculous. But that's what they did for Melania. They didn't do it for Dr. Jill. And it's just like so blatant, the double standards, even on little stupid, meaningless things like this. And I guess there's been pushback. Oh, no, her heels were different than Melania's. These were shorter. Melania's were stilettos. Get out of here. It's just like so insulting and dumb. But it illustrates a point. These journalists say they don't take sides. They're just down the middle firefighters for truth. In many cases, it's nonsense, and they prove it every day. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Earlier in today's program, we spoke face-to-face here at the Hoover Institution with Dr. Scott Atlas, who is a medical doctor, a healthcare expert, a lot to get through with him, including health care policy, but also COVID, the legacy of Dr. Fauci, and more. Here's part of that conversation with Dr. Scott Atlas. I remember well how you were kind of a political lightning rod because you were saying and advising things that were maybe cutting against what others were out there talking about, including Dr. Fauci. The media obviously took sides, as they so often do. Give us just a taste of what it was like inside the administration during that crisis where you were there trying to give your best medical advice while also being criticized from the outside but trying to have an influence on the president from the inside. I just think it's fascinating. Okay. Well, uh, 
It was challenging, extremely challenging. Uh, let, let's uh, set the scene is that uh, at the end of February, Dr. Burks was appointed head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And for the five, six months before I got to Washington, uh, they were in charge. Fauci was the most visible face of the advice to the public, but the person in charge was Burks, who was the person who wrote all official White House federal policy to the states. She was the person who visited all the states in person, all the local health officials. She was the uh, federal policy, and that federal policy was, for better or worse, uh, not just as an advisor, but the people in charge of it, where they were delegated the authority by the Trump administration. So the task force was the federal policy. I was called up, uh, asked at first, would I come and advise the president? And of course, uh, the answer is yes. And if there's something, if anyone who's an American who was asked by the president of the United States to help would say, no, I feel there's something seriously wrong with them. Okay, people were dying grossly incompetent, incorrect policies were in place. And, and how do I know that? Well, from the results. I mean, first of all, we see over a million American deaths, over two administrations were, are attributed to COVID. The policies of, of Burks and Fauci were the lockdowns. They were implemented by almost the entire country. They failed. People died from a, a million people plus, and those policies we're directly uh, generating massive harm. So I said, okay, I'll come in, knowing that it would be difficult, knowing that there would be uh, some criticism, of course, but totally unprepared because I'm not political, unprepared for the pushback, for the venom, for the viciousness, uh, and frankly, for the uh, really, you know, uh, very sad uh, and sort of what I call a very vicious treatment by people in the media and in the country who partly were politicized but partly were irrational because of the fear. And part of that fear, by the way, was introduced by the Fauci and Burks task force, which is not uh, even appropriate, let alone an ethical way, to have public health guidance. You don't, you don't sway people by fear. You sway people by giving them information. So my, my job was to give my best input. People were dying. I didn't care about the consequences to me because, you know, at some point you have to step up, okay? You're, and the funny thing is, in retrospect, most people are never even given the opportunity to do something for their country. Uh, so, you know, I, I said, okay, knowing the sort of political hit job that would happen, uh, I said, okay, I know what I'm talking about. My full interview with Dr. Scott Atlas, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast. It's on demand, no charge, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, Christine and I witnessed something, sort of, that happened at the game, the NFL football game we attended on Monday night, that's now still getting national attention. We'll explain, and we'll see what Judge Christine has to say about it right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. It's Friday Eve on the program. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is 
free of charge every single day on demand as soon as the show is over shortly thereafter. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I always like to remind you of that. So as we talked about at some length on Monday's broadcast and Tuesday's broadcast, producer Christine and I went to an NFL game. Monday Night Football, Rams at 49ers down the road from here. It was Christine's first football game. And she's gotten really into football recently. She loved the experience. And now it looks like, Christine, you're already looking into getting tickets back home for some NFL football this season. Yep. Lions and Giants. Have you got them already? Uh, no, I told Bobby to go get them. Okay. so but I mean, maybe he did. Are you going to be rooting for the Lions? I haven't decided yet. Oh, I'm still. I still have feelings for them. Mm-hmm. I'm just not sure if maybe it's a good idea to be, A, rooting for Detroit in the first place in that franchise, B, rooting for the road team at the Meadowlands. Right. I'll play it neutral again. Okay. And then just sort of see how the vibes feel. Yeah. And if I'm not too high up, I'll stand up for the Giants if I'm not too high up. Right. So you're... We'll see. You might be afraid again that you'd fall down and off the stadium. It's a real thing. Have you not Googled escalator falling game? Have you not put those words into it's Google? It's extremely rare. It's extremely, extremely rare. And this wasn't the escalator. This was out watching the game in the seats, in the stands. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a thing, too, that I think we need to bring awareness. Hmm. We saw it. We saw it right next to me. I mean, he sort of tumbled a little bit, but, like, he wasn't hurt. It wasn't... Tumbling. That's what we're going to call it. It's not like he fell off the upper deck. I think this is my new calling. I'm going to bring awareness to falling at stadiums. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll see how long that passion lasts. But you're now into football, at least for the moment. Yes. Maybe by the end of that game, if you go to Lions-Giants, you'll actually have a team, right? Because you're, you're really searching for a team, but I feel like at some point you need to stop the search and just pick. And so after your second game— Is that game, how you maybe, dated? Just stop the search? And let me just pick one? No. I need to commit. I need to have the feeling inside mm-hmm. of me. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so you might go to this game. Now you would have witnessed four teams in person and just still feel like, no, none of these are good enough for me. I, I, did you de- not date more than four people in your life? Yeah, it's not really how sports works, though. What do you mean? Because right, the people all change. The, the players on the teams come and go. You pick a franchise. You pick a team to root for. Oh, I didn't think about and that. And the people come and go. Wait a second. Hold up. Hold up. So, like, say I became a 49ers fan. Mm-hmm. One day, Debo could just be gone? That's right. And then would you follow him to his new team? Yeah, what do you do? Or do you stick with your team? I didn't even think about that. I'm sure you didn't, but now I'm, I'm forcing the thought. So what, what, what do you, what what do you people I do? What I typically do is I root for teams where I have a deeper connection to the franchise or to the organization. So obviously, like, in college, I root for my team. Where I went to school, I root for Northwestern. When they're good, that's awesome. When they're not so good, as is the case right now, less awesome. But that's my school. That's who I root for. Go Cats. In pro sports, it's just where I grew up. Fourth grade through high school, New York area. Those are the teams. So first baseball game I ever went to, Yankees. I'm a Yankees fan. My dad is a big Yankee fan growing up. First hockey game I went to, New Jersey Devils. I'm a Devils fan. Now, the Giants are the one exception because I've still only in my life been to, I think, only one Giants game ever. And it was not my first game. 
but that was my dad's team. It's where I'm from, so I'm a Giants fan. And then basketball, I just don't care. I went to Knicks games, Nets games, Bulls games. I've been to some Wizards games. It's just not for me. Okay. So I don't. I just don't really have a team there. If I had to pick, I guess it would be the Knicks. It's just I don't follow it at all. So part of that is the connection to the community. People around you are also fans of the team in your neighborhood, at your school, at work or whatever. And it's also the proximity typically where you can go to games because it's in your backyard. You can get there. Now, of course, I then moved away from the New York area. So for me to go to home games for my teams, like it takes a little bit more doing. I have to be in New York. I have to be in New Jersey or whatever. But the reason when I became a sports fan, I went with those teams. It's because of the proximity to like where I lived. So it's about location, not players. And also, I have some people do it the other way. Some people follow players, have favorite players, and they like they root for a player throughout his career. Right. And they'll sort of go from the Pats to the Bucks or whatever for Tom right, Brady. Right. Some people do that, but I think most people, it's about their community, their locality, okay. the fan base. Because it's also fun to sort of be around people who also care about the team. Right, and I mean, I do love my Jersey peeps, so it kind of makes sense. I just want to let you know, and mm-hmm. I'm putting the invite out, if you ever want to sleep over, we can go to the game because I'm not far from the stadium if you need to go see a Giants game. You're more than welcome. Slumber party. Okay. That okay. is That is very kind. I've duly noted. Just putting it out there. The, the invitation there. Now, we've gone well off the planned path as usual here. Mm-hmm. We were going to talk about what we saw or didn't really see on Monday night. There was an incident involving someone who ran onto the field, a protester of some sort, I guess animal rights left-wing protester, ran onto the field at one point during the event and had a lit pink flare, like a smoke flare. Mm -hmm. And he was running all around, taking evasive action, trying to get past security, and they were trying to chase him. And security was having trouble tracking him down. And then he was running past the Rams bench or the the Rams sideline and two different Rams players came off the sideline and sort of teamed up to take the guy down. Football players tackle for a living, especially if you're on defense. So these guys decided, hey, I'm going to do a solid for the security and get this show on the road again. This person shouldn't be on the field. And he got clocked and taken down hard. We were not actually in our seats when this happened. We were out getting food and drink i believe we were in line waiting for concessions and people started talking about it there's someone on the field there's a there's a fan on the field there's a protester on the field something like that and i immediately looked over to make sure you were there with me to confirm that it could not have been you that was my first thought was did cookie get loose we've got a cookie on the loose but nope you were right there you were you were getting some some booze so that was your number one priority so we missed it I have since seen the video of this, and he definitely gets hit pretty hard. But this is also what happens. I've been at other sporting events. When someone is out on the field, that is the biggest no-no, and security goes after these people and takes them down hard because they are trying to not get caught for as long as possible. So there is a punishment there. They're going to take you down hard. They are going to put you in handcuffs. They're going to march you away, and you're going to jail. Which I'm shocked. Yeah, you seemed almost disturbed that someone would go to jail for this. You just think it should just be a warning. That's what I said. I, I think that I said to you, well, just tell them not to do that next yeah. time. So you're basically the Chesa Boudin. <sighs> How dare you? 
of How this. How dare issue. you? Yeah, but they, so that you just want to sort of not even book them. Just say, let them off with a warning. You're soft on crime, just Cookie. Just call me Fetterman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cookie, Cookie Man. <laughs> you should run for Senate in Pennsylvania. You'd fit right in. Um, I take a harder line approach because you have to really disincentivize this kind of behavior. So getting hit and taken down hard and spending a night in jail is, I think, a pretty good message to send. I actually went with my dad as a little kid to rugby matches when we were living in Hong Kong. And it was one of the few live sporting events you could go to because there's not a lot of sports like horse racing. But we, the rugby sevens, my dad took me heavy drinking. Really? The adults all around. I was a kid. People were paying me money to root for their country in the matches, like paying me money to root because they were drunk. So I rooted for Team USA, obviously. I rooted for America. But aside from that, my rooting interests were up for, for up for grabs. Maybe you could try that. You could do a GoFundMe and see which fan base would pay you to join their fan base in the NFL. Not bad. One day, uh, can we talk about what rugby is? Yeah, it's it's confusing. Okay. I didn't really get it. It's It's rugby sevens, which is like seven on each side. There were people rushing the field. There were streakers. There were multiple streakers. Hey now. And they would chase them with giant blankets to then, like, try to <laughs> tackle them and cover them up. So I remember that and thinking, well, that's not good. That's chaotic. I haven't seen a streaker, I think, at a U.S. sporting event, but I've seen people on the field. You were upset that someone would go to jail. This activist, this protester, this trespasser, mm-hmm has now reportedly filed a police report against the Los Angeles Ram who tackled him, and I guess there's discussion of a possible lawsuit. This is, in my view, the definition of frivolous. I hope this person gets the book thrown at him even harder now, that he's trying to waste resources to get the person who tackled him in trouble. He's like, oh, I was assaulted. No. You ran on the field. You were not allowed to be there. You were trying to avoid capture. And someone helped you get caught. And he happened to be a big, strong guy, and that is on you. I think he should spend multiple nights in jail now, given this extra stunt that he's pulling. And he's doing it to try to get more attention to this particular issue that he cares about that we're not going to mention. Well, I mean, he's standing for something. Yeah, but you don't do it this way. And if you choose, by the way, this is the problem that I have, no accountability. If you do something that you know is not allowed. Right. You have to be prepared to suffer the consequences. If you feel like the cause is righteous enough, you say, fine, these are the consequences. I'm going to live with them because it's worth it. What you don't do is pull your stunt and then pretend like you're the victim and that there's no consequences, although that's very on brand for, like, our modern society right now, Mm -hmm. and I hope he gets crushed again in court. One question. Yeah. I just have like a brilliant idea. Uh Uh-oh. I'm just going to put it out there, hint, hint, to whoever's on the staff, not going to name names. What if somebody runs out into the field and does an epic proposal? Would you want them to go to jail? You should not begin your life together with a crime. Is it a crime? It's a sweet crime. Be that as it may, I feel like that it's not very romantic. You don't think? No. So you, okay. All right. We could, we, I mean, we could debate that. Plus, you might get down on a knee to propose, and before you can even say, will you, you just get hammered from behind by some linebacker, and it's over. Yeah, you were going to do all that for The love. ring goes flying into the grass. There's a diamond in the grass somewhere. You get dragged away. That diamond is gone. Ooh. 
I've seen that happen. Are those videos where the diamond goes in the water Ooh. when they're by the lake or something? Mm. Mm. Got to plan better than that. Can I weigh in quick on this one? Sure. Uh, yeah, Surprising. Dan weighs in. <laughs> Any proposal at a sporting event, I go with no. I just what? think it's yep. tough. Yeah, I just go with no across the board. Yep, tacky. Yeah. It's, Not at all. It's tacky. I bet you think proposing on Valentine's Day is tacky, too. Absolutely. If Bobby took you to a Boston Celtics game and proposed to you on a jumbotron, Christine, would that be romantic to you? I enjoy the attention. Okay, so for it, it you're is... talking to a person who wore a hot dog costume in Times Square. Do you want me to tell that story? No, again? no, please. We're out of time. Okay. But look, if you got married at a sporting event on the jumbotron and it worked out, more power to you. It is just like at the very bottom echelon of what I would personally do. Maybe that'll be YY's game plan. <laughs> One day, quiet, Wyatt. <laughs> what do you think? We can we can start taking bets now. But we're out of time. Tomorrow is Friday, our last show tomorrow here at the Hoover Institution. The week has flown by. Yes. Amazing guests. Christine, I have no idea what we're going to talk about on the home stretch tomorrow, but I'm sure it'll be insane. And maybe our dinner tonight will come up. We'll, we'll find out. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening. Back here tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.